listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Welcome to BMO's In Tune podcast. In this episode, we explore takeaways from our 15th annual Farm to Market Conference. As a broad intro, uh, regardless of the setting, in person or virtual, we have always endeavored for a Farm to Market Conference to create a unique forum for investors to gain a comprehensive and global perspective across the entire food and agriculture value chain. As in the past, our 15th annual Farm to Market Conference, which was virtual this year, was highlighted by presentations by senior executives from more than 100 leading companies across this chain, including the fertilizer, seed chemical, agribusiness, protein, packaged food, food retail distribution, and restaurant sectors. The companies spanned the globe and market capitalization spectrum and included private companies. For this episode, we have four of our lead analysts associated with the conference uh, with us today, all of whom will introduce themselves, say what industries they cover, and provide the takeaways they glean from the conversations, meetings, and presentations held during the conference. With that, I'll pass it over to Joel. Thanks, Todd. Hi, my name is Joel Jackson, and I'm the Equity Research Analyst covering fertilizer and chemicals at BMO. Hope everybody is staying well. We had five takeaways at the conference from our coverage, which spans the world of seeds, fertilizers, and crop chemicals. Let's go through them. Number one, we had hoped that ag and crop inputs could be a a safe shelter in the material space uh, during this pandemic, but it hasn't really been that case. And this will be a tough space for investors right now to get comfort in, even as crop input producers all try to put on a brave face from the headwinds around currency and crop prices. That being said, it's possible we've already seen the worst data points on ethanol and crops and corn prices, and there's still many ways the 2021 setup could still be positive as the jury is still out on the current crop, South American crop is still to come, and China could surprise on U.S. ag purchases. Number two, our preferred equities in the space have been the crop chemical names, FMC and Corteva, and they have been the best performing stocks in our space this year. We do expect more of the same. We felt better on Corteva than FMC coming out of the conference. Both FMC and Corteva have FX headwinds, currency headwinds, but both have solid balance sheets, great synergy opportunities still from deals and strong multi-year pipelines. What caught our attention was Corteva sharing that the average soybean seed price might be trading about flat this year, which is extremely positive as many thought that soybean seed prices could be down five or 10% this year, it's going better than thought. Our third point is, although FMC remains a very crowded name uh, that investors like, and we do appreciate the very strong recent execution, we are concerned that some of the story we thought for the midterm that would be positive is pushing out a little bit. FMC is developing new molecules, new active ingredients. We had hoped it could be meaningful in 2021 that this pipeline would develop liver. It's gonna be more 2022 and beyond. Uh, And it's not that big a deal, but it is a bit of a delay that some may question. The fourth one we want to talk about is nitrogen. We do stay constructive in the fertilizers on nitrogen, and we like it more than potash and phosphate. So we like CF and Yara and Nutrien, which are nitrogen stocks. The marginal tons in nitrogen are still being produced from Chinese anthracite coal 
and those prices have hung in and are less connected to oil weakness. The nitrogen price floors we've seen this year are similar to last year's floors and 2018's price floors, so we're confident that nitrogen is hanging in. And our fifth point is on potash. Who will blink in potash? We are concerned that potash producer estimates need to lower. We see too much potash volume coming on this year and in subsequent years, much more than what demand is going to be. And this as a new Russian potash producer Eurochem has finally made good headway at the brand new mine, it's producing well, has a second new mine coming on later this year. If other potash producers do not reduce their operating rates, we could see prices come back in. Yes, we've seen Chinese and Indian potash contracts be settled in recent weeks and prices in Brazil have slightly risen, but this momentum will be lost without appropriate discipline. And I'm gonna turn now to my colleague, Ken Zaslow. Hello and welcome, I'm Ken Zaslow. We cover the agribusiness, protein, and packaged food sectors. After speaking with more than 25 CEOs, CFOs, and industry participants over a three-day span, we think the overarching theme for our farm-to-market conference is that COVID-19 heightened and intensified the extent to which agribusiness, protein, and food are interconnected. The industries have truly become a jigsaw puzzle. With that as a backdrop, we put together a list of seven key takeaways that span the food value chain. First, Food away from home channel likely will continue to gain share of total food consumption given new trial of products and increased household penetration, though there likely will be a dispersion of winners and losers by category and brand. We expect center store focused companies to enjoy a long-term tailwind as consumers have re-engaged with food and cooking at home. In fact, in contrast to past packaged food lifts from past natural disasters, General Mills CEO Jeff Harmoning asserted that consumers did not stock up as much as in the past, but instead purchased one to two weeks food supplies that were largely being consumed. To be fair, the center of the store will remain a hotbed of competitive activity from both private label and emerging brands as consumers' trials continue to accelerate. Second, the changes across the food service industry will have implications across the food supply chain. QSR demand continues to rebound to pre-COVID levels, while casual dining demand improved off loads. The recovery of QSR demand contributed to a surge in breast prices, as well as strength in wing prices. Again, to be fair, few expect the food service industry to return to historical levels before 2022. In fact, total spending at restaurants is still down 44% in states that reopened early. Third, COVID has become an accelerant for online growth. Online grocery purchases now account for 10% of all grocery sales, though a share of online grocery purchases likely will stabilize near 6-7% to over the near term. Fourth, U.S. packaged food companies likely will enjoy an improvement in profits and operating profit margins over the next 12 months as they focus on core SKUs, decelerate innovation, reduce merchandising, and benefit from favorable operating leverage. To be fair, Food companies likely will reallocate a portion of the trade dollars to cover higher future supply chain costs as as COVID-related costs may be sticky and may not have a clear opportunity to push through to the consumer through pricing. Fifth, with the exception of food service exposure, emerging markets likely will create the weakest portion of most companies' portfolios, reflecting a strong dollar, less availability of COVID testing, longer quarantines, the potential for greater recessionary headwinds, and higher exposure and reliance on commodities such as oil. Sixth. Labor has quickly and undeniably emerged as a linchpin to the future of agribusiness and protein fundamentals, with all roads leading to higher chicken prices. After COVID-19 initially forced 25 to 30% of U.S. pork capacity and 20% of U.S. beef packing capacity to close, the beef and pork industries have begun to return operations to more historical levels. Seventh, higher exports across the agribusiness and protein industries should support prices and margins over the long term. 
Exports likely will increase over the long term and accelerate late in 2020 and into 2021, given the global protein shortage from ASF, favorable trade deals, and U.S. grains becoming more competitive. China likely will represent the largest increase exports over time. That said, executives at our conference largely agree that exports will slow down in the near term. The bottom line on the agribusiness and protein industries is that most agribusiness protein models have proven resilient as companies navigate the upheaval created by COVID-19 and steer towards long-term growth opportunities. Operational excellence and flexibility with distinguished winners from losers across the agribusiness and protein. With the backdrop of lower GDP and lower interest rate macro environment, we continue to advocate a basket of U.S. food stocks, given the earnings cushion with potential to solidify growth algorithms. The U.S. packaged food industry will emerge stronger after the COVID-19 virus outbreak, as those that, one, leverage their brand strength, two, minimize supply disruptions, three, adjust their business models, and invest in incremental cash for higher margin to high return on invested capital investments. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Kelly Banya. Thanks, Ken. This is Kelly Bania. We were thrilled to host many of the uh, distributors from our food retail and distribution coverage at this year's Farm to Market Conference, as well as host our keynote on day one of the conference uh, with the CEO of Shipped, which is Target's same-day grocery delivery platform. The trends with food at home and food away from home have really been turned upside down over the past several months. And the key themes in our coverage really remain a timeline for a recovery and, and the return of those trends and what the longer term implications of this pandemic could be. On one hand, we heard some very interesting insights from online grocery delivery platform Shipped. Again, Shipped is Target's same-day online grocery delivery platform, which also partners uh, along with Target with more than 100 of the leading retailers across the U.S. Shipped competes with the likes of Instacart, Amazon, and Walmart, and all the other online grocery delivery companies, and has expanded now to 300 markets, servicing 70% of U.S. households across 5,000 cities. Interestingly, Shipped has doubled its shopper network to 200,000 in the past few months amid the growing demand for its service. And Shipped uh, CEO does believe that this recent acceleration of online grocery is here to stay. And in fact, 30% of U.S. households are now shopping for online grocery or as of March 2020, and that's up significantly from 13% last year. Shipped also noted that their customer base has expanded beyond the traditional suburban households with a variety of other customer demographics and sees its service as a convenience, not only a luxury. It was also a pleasure to host the CEO and CFO of UNFI at Farm to Market. UNFI is a distributor to Amazon Whole Foods, as well as to many other grocers across the country, and UNFI positively pre-announced favorably ahead of the conference. And they also commented that they are not seeing any slowdown. And in fact, UNFI believes that this pandemic may have started the shift towards eating at home, but the ensuing recession and pressures on consumer budgets is what may keep it going. Um, this lines up pretty well with some of the data that we have been tracking our grocery uh, data from IRI for the first two weeks of May grew 25%, and that's only a slight moderation from the 28% growth in the prior four weeks um, of April. But for an industry that typically grows low single digit, the, these are still astronomical levels. 
From the food service distributor's perspective, and that includes Cisco, U.S. Foods, Performance Food Group, and Chef's Warehouse, they all continue to highlight a continuation of week-to-week sales improvements, generally from the down 40 to 50% sales trends that we were experiencing several weeks ago. This has been hands down the most controversial part of our coverage and where there was the most interest at our conference. The debate among food service remains their positioning for market share gains as smaller regional food service distributors may struggle more in this environment. And that was the clear theme that we are hearing from the big three, which is absolutely using working to use their size, scale, and liquidity to go after market share with both new and existing customers. Cisco added details on this strategy for market share gains and noted that they have 30% of share of wallet for for the products it sells. And they believe that there's potential to take more wallet share, which could help mitigate losses from the independent closures in a meaningful way. Both Cisco and U.S. Foods do expect the competitive environment to remain rational. This was a key uh, takeaway from farm to market, but also an area of risk in our view. We think a lot will depend on the extent of independent restaurant closures. Our official forecast at this time is unfortunately 30%. That that poses a challenge for the industry because that is the high margin segment of the industry. There are many forecasts that are higher, um, and our forecast may sound bearish, but we think it's realistic at this time. Cisco CFO also made a comment that really stuck out to us, but I think is quite realistic. And I think that the point is that they expect the timing of potential share gains and and the shape of this recovery to be more like a series of W's instead of a V. And we also align with that view. We were also fortunate to hear from the CEO of Cormark. Cormark is leading C-Store, a convenience store distributor. The sales declines across convenience have been less steep, and we continue to think there could be a quicker recovery there. They gave some interesting data points at our fireside chat. Their strategy has been to focus on working with their convenience stores to convert self-service food and grab and go um, to pre-packaged. And I think that channel will evolve very quickly. They also made an interesting point that even though national gas gallon demand was down 40 to 50% at the peak, food at convenience store sales were only down 20%. Uh, So I think that's an interesting point to think about, that people don't necessarily need to be on the road as much as one might think in order to um, have a return of those important high-margin food categories at convenience. So with that, I will pass it along to Andrew Strelzik. All right, great. Thanks, Kelly. My name is Andrew Strelzik, and I cover the restaurants. We're fortunate at the conference to hear from public and private restaurant companies and suppliers across food service distribution protein producers, ingredient suppliers, so multifaceted lens into what's going on with the restaurants. Uh, There are four takeaways that I wanted to share. The first um, is to highlight the divergent commentary about the fast food and full service or sit-down restaurants. Several food service distributors and suppliers noted that some areas of QSR are getting close to flat comps, particularly among the typically stronger brands within the industry, and that the fast food recovery began accelerating in early May. On the other hand, full-service demand was said to be down a lot more, and a number of presenters highlighted expectations for a slow recovery for full-service dining. One producer uh, presenter expects eating at home market share could stay elevated for 18 to 24 months, which naturally would pressure full-service dining trends, and another doesn't expect demand to recover to pre-COVID levels for two to three years. 
The second takeaway is related to government-imposed capacity restrictions for dine-in. There's been a lot of commentary about how capacity restrictions make reopening restaurants uneconomical, but a private restaurant operator offered an opposing view as the combination of more off-premise sales, meaning to-go and delivery, plus demand that's becoming more spread out throughout the day when capacity is generally low, so uh, lunch or non-peak eating times, those two things together can create a pathway for stores to approach pre-COVID volumes, even with capacity restrictions. Third, there was a lot of conversation about what, what restaurants will look like in a post-COVID environment. wanted to just share some of the ideas that were mentioned there. The first one is family meals becoming more permanent menu items. When full-service restaurants were forced to transition to off-premise only, adding family meals for takeout or delivery was a bit of a savior, and now it could become a more permanent addition to the menu that could bring in a bit of a different customer and a bit of a different eating occasion. Second, changes to store footprints, in particular, uh, that brands could utilize smaller dining rooms, given the strong off-premise growth, and increasingly incorporate outdoor or patio dining, where it's easier to socially distance, and consumers may feel more comfortable relative to being packed inside with other people. And another idea was that with companies forced to operate with pared-down menus and labor models through this pandemic, the companies would learn from that and evolve operations to remain more streamlined moving forward. It was mentioned that some operators are using the current environment as an opportunity to make tough decisions to improve their operating models and emerge as stronger restaurants than they normally uh, wouldn't be making these decisions in better times. And then the fourth takeaway that I wanted to share, I just wanted to echo uh, Ken's comments on the proteins. You know, as it relates to food costs for restaurants over the near and medium term, protein producers seem pretty optimistic that prices would stay elevated through the summer. But beyond that, labor really being the linchpin, to use Ken's word. Um, and, and how that's going to impact the uh, environment for food costs for these restaurants moving forward it tends to be about 30-35% of sales. So it's a key uh, cost input for these restaurants. And so a lot to watch and, and pay attention to there. Uh, so that's it for me. And I'll pass it back over to you, Todd. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, appreciate that. And Joel, Ken, and Kelly, appreciate your comments as well. Before we wrap up, I just thought I'd ask each analyst to answer, uh, answer a question across the uh, group. We can start it out with Joel, your response, then, uh, then Ken, then Kelly, then Andrew. But the question is, you know, based on your comments and your takeaways from the foreign market conference, which company or companies uh, within your coverage do you think is best positioned to outperform over the long term, and again, just based on what you saw at the uh, farm to market conference. Joel, you first, please. Thanks, Todd. Definitely for us, it'd be Corteva, CTVA, you know, come out of the Dow DuPont merger split, um, have a great R&D pipeline in terms of seed traits that they've never really had before, be able to take market share across some larger players and be able to reduce their own trade licensing outflows. You know, this company has tremendous and iconic seed brands, a large moat in that business, Good pipeline, good balance sheet. I think that this company can re-rate as they improve their margins and reduce their trait uh, licensing outflows. From our perspective, uh, we think about it in two pieces. One, we think about it from a basket of packaged food stocks, given that the economy as well as the increase in food at home should propel the sales growth as well as provide a cushion for longer term growth uh, for the packaged food group. In terms of on the ag and protein side, we would recommend Samson Farms for three key reasons. One is all roads, in our view, lead to higher chicken prices. Second, 
lower feed costs, which should create a lower cost structure for them. And third, they came out really as the winner in terms of operational excellence and how they dealt with uh, COVID-19. And I think that will serve them well over time. Thanks. And this is Kelly. So we are uh, very bullish on the big box retailers. So we think there's two uh, really key trends coming out of the last several months um, that are positive for this group. First, we think market share trends in discretionary categories are really poised to accelerate in a post-COVID retail landscape as competitor closures accelerate and or competitors on the discretionary side emerge from this crisis in a much higher leverage situation, which we think will limit their ability to make uh, some of the investments that are needed um, in this environment. And two, we think the acceleration of e-commerce and same day in particular is a dramatic positive for this group. And we think these two key factors will be key themes across the retail side of our coverage as we um, move forward. We actually think Target uh, is poised to benefit the most from these factors because of their higher discretionary mix. But these are also really big positives for Walmart and Costco. And so that's where we are most bullish is, is on the big box retailers. And within the restaurants, our you know, favorite long-term idea, especially based on what we learned at the conference, would be Wingstop. Uh, if you look at kind of a post-COVID environment, uh, more off-premise, lower touch, opportunities for family meals, you know, streamlined operations, Wingstop really hits on every single one of those in a, in a really core way uh, relative to the concept. They don't need to change much uh, in terms of what they do to really excel in you know, I guess the post-COVID kind of new normal type of environment. So that, in addition to some of the other, you know, kind of core pieces of the thesis, which would be, you know, long-term ability to grow units and those types of things, it has what it takes to excel in both the near-term and the long-term relative to how the industry may evolve post the COVID-19 pandemic. That's great, Andrew. Appreciate it, and uh, Ken, Kelly, and Joel appreciate the uh, the mentioning of the companies as well, or the potential investments there. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, to listen to the podcast. Look forward certainly to the next episode. Please stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. Thanks a lot for joining. Thanks for listening to Intune. Presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.